Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, the best-selling author of books like Buddha's Brain and Resilient, which we wrote together. And he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, Forrest, and always, always tickled pink to do this with you. Yeah, very much the same. I've been looking forward to today's episode for a little while because today we're going to be focusing on one of the questions that we get most frequently, which is how a person can deal with intrusive or obsessive thoughts. It's normal for thoughts to get stuck in our head sometimes or for things to happen to us that we have a really hard time letting go of. But when thoughts are negative, persistent, recurring, and generally uncontrollable, they can have a really huge impact on our quality of life. And we've gotten a lot of questions from listeners outlining how they've been trying to deal with the same persistent thought for literally decades, which highlights just how difficult these thought patterns can be to break. So that's what we're going to be exploring today, how we can break out of cycles of rumination and release obsessive thoughts. So dad, I just used a word there, rumination. It's a bit of a technical word. Can we just start by explaining that to people who might not be familiar with it? Ruminating is when we keep getting carried away by the same negative train yeah, inside our own minds. And it could be focused on thoughts. It could be going back over and over again to rehashing a conversation or revisiting some traumatic memory or period in your time or worrying about the same thing over and over with, you know, a combination of thoughts and feelings and sensations. So the kind of word comes from the ruminants who chew their cud. Now they chew their cud productively <laughs> to somehow extract nutrition, you know, from grass, separating out the cellulose from the nutrients and so forth. These are animals like cows, for the record. This is not like a, a, a strange sect of people living in some obscure <laughs> part of the world, just to, just That's to clarify. Right. That's right. <laughs> I, I think they might even have cloven hoofs. I don't know. But anyway, they chew their cud. And yeah. uh, so it's sort of like the mental version, the psychological version of chewing your cud with negative connotations. So it's repetitive, it's unproductive, and it's negative. It's really different from a passing daydream about a a time you've had in the summer or by a mountain lake or looking forward to a vacation or productively, you know, worrying about something but driving to a conclusion that you're going to do or solving a problem in some way. Mm -hmm. No, rumination mm -hmm. is invasive, repetitive, and negative, and it's not productive. For me, the feature of it that stands out the most is that you're not really generating anything new. Mm -hmm. You're just thinking the same old thoughts over and over again. And I can definitely think of a lot of times in my life where I've just been stuck on a concept or, or stuck on something that happened to me. That's often where these things come from. We have experiences that are just really hard for us to shake in different ways. And then there's kind of this whole other category that we'll talk about in a second. These very wild, bizarre, intrusive thoughts that can just appear in our minds for all sorts of different reasons. So these are different things that might kind of pop up for people. But if you're interested in learning more about rumination and working with these cycles of thoughts, it turns out that Rick actually has a workshop on rumination coming up. It's going to be on April 22nd. It's a one-day live online workshop. I actually didn't know that you had this workshop coming up when I planned this episode, Dad, so it just kind of timed out for us. And if you want to check that out or learn more about it, you can visit rickhansen.net slash rumination to learn more, and you can get 20% off with the coupon code 
being well 20. Is there anything else you want to add, Dad, or did I do that about right there? Underneath it all, I am moved to talk about the fact, briefly, that we're really talking here about autonomy and freedom Mm -hmm. inside your own mind. Yeah, love this. So you can rest your attention on what is productive and useful for you and keep it there without getting distracted this way and that. On the other side, not getting your attention dragged against your will, in effect, into some kind of preoccupation that doesn't feel good, it's not helpful, it doesn't go anywhere. So to to feel inside your own mind, you can stop the same show from playing over and over and over again on the stage of awareness. Yeah, yeah. Really good, which clears space then for the kind of shows that you really want to have unfolding in the theater of your own mind. Great setup. I would love to ask you a little bit more about the thoughts that we have a little bit less control or a little bit less influence yeah. over before we get to opening up the freedom a little. Yeah. Why do people get stuck on certain kinds of thoughts? Like we talk a lot on the show about psychological function. What's the function that this rumination or obsession process is serving? It's a really great question. So chimpanzees don't ruminate. Gorillas don't ruminate. Very, very intelligent primates and and as we know, dogs and cats don't ruminate. They don't have the neurological capacity. So one of the great developments neurologically, arguably, in the last couple, three million years has been twofold. Number one, our profoundly social brain and our capacities for relationships of various kinds, and also our capacities to ruminate, in effect. Our capacities to do what's called mental time travel, to go into the future or the past and be kind of lost in internal mini movies. Mm -hmm. That second capacity has lots of advantages. It enables us to learn from our past and to make plans for our future. On the other hand, that fantastic equipment can get hijacked for problematic purposes, specifically thoughts that are repetitive, we get stuck with, and they don't really help us. So why do we do that? Part of the reason is that the rumination process is a defense against certain experiences. When people go up into their heads, as it were, and start obsessing about something, very often that's a way to avoid experiencing something. Even though they don't like obsessing, in part, obsessing functions to pull us into cognitions and away from sensations and emotions, which mm-hmm. are scary and painful. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happens is a kind of habit that people can just fall into, the habit of rumination. The last one is very rooted in psychoanalysis and the notion of the defense in that people can ruminate about certain things or obsess about certain things to ward off certain experiences. It's the idea that if you keep thinking the same thought, that somehow magically that will prevent a disaster coming to your children. So if you worry about your children's health, that will somehow prevent your children from getting sick. Or your mom, as long as she's worrying about being in a car accident, that will prevent the accident (laughs) from happening. Sure, yeah. Or she's worrying about the plane crashing, that will prevent the plane from crashing. So you say to her, stop worrying about the plane crashing. You don't like that. She goes, no, it might crash now. 
<laughs> not not exactly. <laughs> and she's a very rational, bright person, as we all know. Your mom. It's a combination Earth mother and supercomputer. So that's really <laughs> a, a good thing. But but think about the function. So I, we can get more yeah. into this. But a certain kind of magical thinking can creep in to obsessive thinking. So I'm going to loosely split our obsessive thoughts into two different categories here. The first would be annoying or repetitive thoughts. And an extreme version of this could be a song being stuck in your head for months on end. I've never had the months on end no, version. No, don't say it. But don't I've definitely it. had the like week and a half version, and that is no fun Earworm, right? Earworm. Yeah, the total earworm. And then the second category, I'm. this is a big, broad category. I'm just going to call it thoughts that make us feel bad. So these are thoughts that lead to a negative emotion. Uh, we feel bad just because we had the thought. And a common subcategory of this, sometimes they're labeled disturbing thoughts. Mm, and this could yeah. include everything from a weird, horrific image that appears in your mind, maybe something that you saw in the past or something that happened to you, or even just a pure feature of your imagination where it's just like creating it from whole cloth. To inappropriate sexual fantasies are a really common version of this, just to name it, to whatever else. And many of the intrusive or obsessive thoughts that people want to rid themselves of are a combination of both of these things. They're this persistent, repetitive preoccupation with a past event that also makes the person feel bad is probably the most common version of this. And typically, thoughts that are in that kind of annoying category, we can talk about things to do about them a little bit maybe, but we're mostly going to focus on the second category because that's where the emotional content is, right? It's hard yeah. to distract ourselves away from dealing with thoughts that are based on on underlying experiences or emotional content that's unresolved in some way. I moved, you know, I moved to say the dumb thing I routinely say, which is, oh my gosh, you'd be an incredible therapist. But actually, I think you have found an even better niche for yourself. So that's being it. a professional amateur, which I'm perfectly happy with. Well, amateur is one who loves what they're doing. Oh, wow. Wow. Way to flip that around on me, dad. That was great. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And I love the fact, too, that for us, that embedded in what you're saying is this broad teaching that a lot of the stuff that bugs us and harms us is well intended. Mm -hmm. at some level in the basement of the architecture of our nervous system. It's well-intended. Mm -hmm. It's a coping yeah. response. It has a function. It's trying to serve that function. The problem is there are costs with how it's doing it, and there are better ways. So by understanding these mechanisms, as you point out, and understanding what they're trying to accomplish, that then is the first step toward getting more regulation over them and learning how to accomplish the same good purpose but in a less costly and better better kind of way. That's a real broad principle, isn't it? In being well, the topic of our podcast. Yeah, totally. And so one of the things that the brain is trying to do when it's ruminating is it's trying to problem solve in some kind of way. This is one possibility. Another one, as you just named a little bit earlier, is uh, it's a coping strategy. And as we go through life, we have to figure out what to do about different kinds of situations, right? And this problem solving is occurring in the background of the brain all the time. It's one of its most important capabilities. But when we're faced with a situation that doesn't really have a figureoutable solution, the how of solving it isn't obvious to us, right? Or it might not exist at all. And the brain can become really fixated on it, like replaying it over and over, analyzing every aspect of it, trying to figure out, oh, if I just did this thing a little bit differently, and we just can't let it go. 
And so we think that we are doing something about the problem, the fear, the anxiety that we have, when in reality, we're not doing anything about it. We're just activating ourselves over and over about it. And one of the interesting things about this, particularly with something like OCD, is that the soothing behavior that's associated with the intrusive thought doesn't actually make things better for the person. Hmm. Like the compulsion that they have doesn't lead to any lasting relief. And that's why there's a difference between disordered OCD and somebody maybe like you, Dad, who you like to jokingly refer to yourself as having a couple of the genes for OCD. You just like a, a nice, neat space. You you want things to be tidy and organized. Yeah, my aesthetic is Zen Scandinavian. Yeah, yeah. But if you keep things relatively tidy and organized, you feel better. You're like, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I don't keep straightening the shelf because it's straight. For somebody with disordered OCD, the compulsion doesn't actually lead to relief. And that's something that's really interesting about this whole thing. One thing I, I want to kind of call out, I guess, is the difference between active rumination in the foreground of awareness. But I just kind of want to name something else, uh, which is it's as if in the background, there is a certain view of yourself, a certain belief about yourself, the past, other people, or the future, those four major categories. It's not exactly rumination. But I think some of the things that we're talking about are actually going to be pretty useful in terms of clearing those baked-in negative views of yourself that keep happening. They keep casting a long shadow. They keep being broadcast inside your own mind. I think you're totally right. A lot of broad application of this. And we're mostly going to focus from here on out on what I'll call the subclinical range of intrusive or obsessive thoughts. We've done some episodes on OCD in the past, but that is a specific problem. I am not a clinician. Yeah. You are not necessarily an expert in OCD specifically or something right. like that. And, and there might still be some things here that we talk about that are useful for that clinical level, but I just want to offer that as some context. If somebody walked into the office to work with you and they led with, hey, Rick, you know, I just have this really bizarre thought that has been stuck in my mind for the past six months, or I've been replaying this past event over and over and over again, and I just can't let go of it, what can I do? Where would you start with them? Well, I'd start initially with being interested and supportive and normalizing it and trying to do what therapists do early on, other healthcare professionals, you're doing an intake, right? And mm -hmm. you're kind of trying yeah. to get a read on, is this someone who seems fine, but is bleeding out on the floor? You know, you're kind of trying to get a read on what's actually going on. But then fundamentally, I'm interested in what's the experience that the um, rumination is functionally designed to prevent. Maybe the rumination promotes a behavior like cleanliness activities, or maybe the rumination is a kind of magical thinking that as long as I think this, I won't get cancer, for example, or I, I won't be punished by God. Because a lot of rumination for a lot of people, has a religious rooting to it hmm. that can be really interesting to explore. But basically, it's designed to prevent an experience. So, okay, so what's being held at bay by the rumination? And then how can I help the person be present with, tolerate that experience, so then they get to a kind of completion on it? Very often, rumination's about, you could say, non-experienced experience. Stuff that's pushed down, warded off, disowned, kept at bay. And a lot of the journey 
is about softening, including, landing, tolerating, and learning that it's okay to do those things. Partly if you think too, what is the the nature of rumination tends to be quite verbal, internal verbal activity. So it's pulling people into that subset of the psyche, that relatively small portion actually of the vast estate of your own being. Mm. And well, what's that about? And sometimes too, that's part of the function that as long as I'm ruminating, I'm happily out of touch because I don't want to be in touch with my feelings. So rumination isn't technically dissociation, but it has a dissociative function because it disassociates people from the visceral world of their own bodily experience, their feelings, their sensations, and so on. So we actually haven't done this very much on the podcast, and I'm kind of springing this on you a little bit, Dad. But I think it might be fun for me to paint a scenario for you, just to make this real. And you can then sort of let me know what goes on your mind as a clinician after you you hear the setup. How does that sound? Yeah, great. Fantastic. So maybe they say something to you along the lines of, and I'm trying to think of a good, maybe a good example of this here. Okay, I think I actually have two. If we have enough time, we'll do both of them. I want to start with one that that might seem a little odder because there's a classic one here about, oh, you know, I'm just really keep on going over the same old conversation that I just had with somebody or I had 10 years ago with a person. I just can't get rid of it. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit. But I want to start with one that might seem a little odder, but I've certainly experienced versions of this. Let's say that the person comes into your office and they say something like this to you. You know, I I feel like I'm a pretty mentally healthy person. I'm doing okay in my life. But every night when I lie down to go to sleep, I have a hard time sleeping. And I have a hard time sleeping because these weird thoughts just start appearing in my head. And they're always kind of the same thoughts. And they'll take slightly different forms. Maybe I'll think that there's somebody in the closet spying on me. And so I have this fear of the side of the room that the closet is on. And sometimes I'll even have to get up and open the door to the closet and look around. And I'm always just like petrified before I do it, but I just have to do it to be able to go to sleep. Or maybe I'll be just terrified that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to see like a dead body on the floor, or I'm going to turn to my partner and they're not going to be breathing. And I'm just, and I just have these horrific thoughts and I just can't get over them. Especially when I was younger, I, I would have some versions of that kind of thing. I, I've had the version of that also when I was younger, particularly like the monster under the bed. That was a big one for me when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, first off, obviously compassion. There's suffering in it. You know, on intake, as it were, I'd be wanting to understand what's going on here altogether. Meds are always worth checking out because meds can have odd mental side effects you mm, didn't know mm-hmm. about. Uh, your grandfather, uh, my dad, the only panic attack he had in his life was right after a medication change, for example. Oh, yeah. You know, I was just rule out, just rule it out. But, you know, one in a hundred, hey, maybe there's something to think about there. So that, and you also wonder about trauma mm, and a mm-hmm. person's general, how well glued together the, their psychological structure is, because it's in the gap between the tiles in the mosaic of the psyche, that stuff can just bubble up. And totally. some people are not well glued together. So you're trying to read that. And also wondering about, is the imagery that's coming up 
a disguised form or a modified form of something that actually happened to them that was significant, maybe when they were really young. Maybe they misunderstood something, but what's going on here? So let's suppose, though, that we kind of clear out those rule outs. It's not a physiological issue. This is a fairly well glued together, you know, normal range kind of functioning and so forth. No trauma history. It's just, it's coming up. It's popping up. Yeah, totally. My overall understanding, and this kind of goes to um, teaching from Carl Jung, is that the images of the archetypes, archetypal images, very potent images, are expressions of the instincts in the sense that we humans, who seem so cultured and civilized and whatnot, we are savage animals, basically, with this thin veneer of civilization just kind of layered on the raw primal, you know, 200 million years of mammalian evolution and another 400 years of evolution before that as multi-celled creatures. The amazing thing is not that we're, the bad things happen. The amazing thing is that we're as well-behaved as we usually are. Mm. Stuff can bubble up, really bubble up. So one thing with people I try to convey is that it's, it's normal to, I'm going to use a technical term here, to have weird shit arise. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Totally. I just to kind of butt in here for a second. Yeah. This, this was really one of the things that I was thinking about, and we'll, we'll get back to like the case study in a second, but that I was thinking about when we were just setting up for this episode in general. Everyone thinks weird thoughts. Yeah. We all think, or not we all, but like most people tend to think, I am the only person who has thoughts this weird. You see that happen all the time when when I talk to like therapists and one of the things they say over and over again is like, yeah, people come in and they always think that they are the only person who has ever had this problem. Yeah. And I've saw eight other people today who had that same problem. Yeah. You know, it's just these are human problem kind of things. And so one of the big early stage antidotes for this sort of stuff is a sense of common humanity. Yeah. And just a feeling of like, look, this is a normal experience. I'm probably going to be okay. We can work through this. People have developed good treatments for things. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they will necessarily work for me. But hey, we're going to give it the good old college try here, and things will probably get better over time. And that itself is like such a great starting point and such a better starting point than feeling alone and isolated and defeated around the experience. Wonderfully said, Forrest. Really, really true. So let's say that's, first of all, the first thing, normalizing a second thing is to assess reality testing in general. Mm, and that's mm-hmm. a technical term, reality testing. To what extent is this person grounded in actual material reality in which there really are not monsters under beds? Or is this a person who's really has a kind of a slippery relationship with real reality. I, I call it sometimes a periscope relationship. Really, they're sort of living in the depths, but every so often they pop up their periscope to engage in object of reality. That kind of person is it's harder to work with because there's a kind of a slippery sense of what's actually real and what's not real. And sometimes mm-hmm. that has to do with a trauma history. Sometimes you work with that. I think it's also really important to respect neurodiversity, neurological diversity sure. and cultural totally. diversity. And you know, consensus reality for a Western secular scientific materialist, who in my case happens to believe in God, as I call, as I mean that. But in any case, that's not necessarily 
normal for a person who comes from a different culture. So respecting those differences, I think it's truly important. And then what to do about it, what I find helpful is to acknowledge the presence of the image and to even just name it, to note it. Oh, or the feeling, oh, fear of monster or creepy image or worried about dead body and just name it. The naming itself gives you some breathing room from it. It engages more rational parts of your brain. That's good. And then don't feed it. That's a really important thing. It's the idea that that arose and I'm, I'm not going to go back there again. Then, and sometimes what that means is to deliberately distract yourself, to move your body, to shift, to, to read a book, to think about a happy movie. It's just to move away from it, to not dwell on it, and to exercise some will. And to watch parts of you that are, my friend Daniel Ellenberg calls traitor parts, that sometimes keep wanting you to go back to it. And you have to decide, no, I don't want to go back to it. Now, to be able to do that, I know I'm giving kind of a top-down approach, but there is a place for exercising top-down will inside your own mind that you just say, nope, I'm just not going to feed it. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to give it credibility. I'm not going to believe it. And I'm going to make myself think about other stuff. There's a place for that. Another strategy, and you can do both of them, is to ask yourself, what is the feeling that that image or thought brings up? So, okay, there could, you know, the monster under the bed, the closet, the dead body in the morning. What's the feeling that if that did happen, that I would feel? And then can you allow yourself to feel it? Can you allow yourself to imagine the terror you would experience? And to make room for that possibility. Because when you make room for that possibility, a kind of settling occurs in your in your psyche, a kind of it's as if the image is trying to help you process something. And so when you open to the possibility, you can, you can complete around it. You move to a kind of completion of the gestalt, it's called the whole pattern. You allow the whole pattern to complete. Mm. Right? Yeah, there would be terror. And then you try to help yourself be okay with that if it happened. You don't want it to happen. You're not trying to make it happen, but it would be tolerable. You'd still be here after the terror passes through. To speak to that, maybe a little personally here, give a personal example of this, just a version of this. And, and this for me was more when I was a an old teenager. It was when I was kind of like 16-ish, 17-ish years old. I used to be quite afraid of the dark, as you probably remember, Dad, and very much a there's a monster under my bed kind of person. And somewhere in there, and I forgot exactly how old I was when I started to do this, and I think this was based on a conversation that we had where you said something kind of along these lines to me. You said it in a more more kid-friendly way, however however you put it at the time. But it was basically like, well, Forrest, you know, what would happen if this thing happened? Like, And I would be like, oh, well, the monster would get me. And you said something to the effect of like, well, what? how can you work with that? How would you feel? What would that do? And for me, it became a whole piece with death thing. Yeah. Where literally almost every night for a good three to six months when I was a late teenager, I essentially had like a peace with death wow, process before I went to bed almost every night. I had to be like, well, 
you know, if I don't wake up, that would be a real bummer and I would miss out on all these great experiences that I hope to have in the rest of my life. But hey, I was dead for 13 and a half billion years and I didn't feel a darn thing. And so, you know, I'd probably be okay. So, and, and that was what got me over the hump. And after I did that practice for a long enough period of time, something happened. Like you said, the gestalt completed, the process was was good. And, and that's not to say I never have these preoccupations. Still to this day, if I wake up at three in the morning and go to the restroom, one out of every 100 times, I'll have a weird sort of like, oh, there's somebody else in the house. But I would describe it as like a normal range sort of experience as opposed to a morbid preoccupation, if that makes sense. And isn't it interesting? I mean, as your dad, I didn't know this full detail. Yeah, yeah, totally. I am glad that I was willing to kind of go there and not, mm-hmm. you know, kid you about it. Because, yeah, the ultimate thing is to be at peace with whatever. Yeah. It's funny. There's actually a famous story. I'll share it. I think it's relevant. Uh, so a major teacher in the Buddhist tradition that people like Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and others are situated in, named Ajahn Chah. We've talked about Ajahn Chah. Incredibly simple, direct person in the a Thai forest tradition, living in the forest, who was, you know, deeply wise. When he was a younger monk in his practices, he was very afraid of spirits. So he went to the grave area, charnel ground, and he closed his eyes and he started to meditate. And he described one particular experience in which he did that, and he began to hear the sound of a being approaching him. And in that context, it's like you can just imagine the, you know, what was flooding his mind. And he, I think, described his mind as just absolutely terror-stricken. But he kept his eyes closed because that was his practice. It was to keep being with the breath, no matter what happened, staying in the present, being open to everything. And the sounds got closer. The steps came closer. The terror was rising, and he just stayed with it. At some point, and then the sounds started to, you know, there were no more sounds anymore, and like, he still didn't know, kept his eyes closed. But he was so given over to it that he had an enlightenment experience, essentially, on the heels of this, in which he just had completely given over to it. He fully allowed it, and he was like completely surrendered and free fundamentally, in his relationship to it. We'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science, lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DS01 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25beingwell to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic 
at seed.com slash being well code two five being well. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com slash beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein, and particularly more healthy protein, into my diet, and IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to 64,000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now, our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text BEINGWELL to 64000. Get your discount. Text BEINGWELL to 64000. That's B-E-I-N-G-W-E-L-L to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash being well. It is really interesting how often the freedom is found in just like an acceptance of, of the fear of the thought, if that makes sense. Well, I'll tell a story here. Much like you, I had a lot of fears as a kid. When I, as a young fellow, started taking psychedelics, I would routinely have the experience of looking at a blank surface like the top of the ceiling in my dorm room back at UCLA. 
And I would start seeing this devouring mouth, very intense, blood, saliva, and I would just snap out of the experience. Whoa. This went on routinely in psychedelic trips. I would just look at something blank and this imagery would start coming to me. Finally, probably four or five years after I started taking psychedelics, so now I'm in my early 20s, maybe a few years later probably, I'm in the desert. I'm in Joshua Tree National Park Monument then. LSD roaring through my system, and I start looking at a bush. And in the desert, most of the bushes have thorns to protect the water inside the bush. Okay. So I started looking at this bush, and every thorn became a face that was devouring. And in this case, instead of pulling myself out of the experience, I opened into it. And in that release into it, I realized that what I was seeing outside me was that which I had suppressed inside me. We tend to suppress what is the opposite of our surface presentation. I had suppressed a kind of vicious, not scientific or rational, that were then being represented outside me. And in that realization that came with the surrender, I completed a gestalt of including these aspects that I, a rational, masculine, socialized, scientifically oriented kind of person, had pushed away. And in that was a tremendous release. So I've never had imagery like that again. And basically, I haven't really had any nightmares since. Well, that's really interesting, Dad. And you're, you're moving me to, to something that I've been thinking about a lot recently which is a, a general point on dealing with obsessive thoughts or just difficult experiences even more broadly with that, where if you look at if you look at the research and you look at the literature, and if you look at all the different strategies there are for recovering from painful experiences of different kinds, and this could include obsessive or intrusive thoughts, traumatic experiences, whatever, or just growing and healing broadly as a person, you'll see this really interesting theme pop up over and over again which is a balance of closeness and distance. That's right. You're close enough to do something about it, but you're not so close that you become overwhelmed by it. So let's use an example here. We talk about creating a coherent narrative of childhood a lot on the podcast, and this is a process, and it's been an extremely useful one for me, where somebody goes through and explores in a very detailed way what happened to them, why it happened to them, what was going on in the broader field of events, and you create a kind of story about it that helps us make sense of what happened in the here and now. That's a lot of closeness. That is not denying what happened. That's not pushing it away. That's not going full dissociation about it. That is a lot of closeness. But you're doing it from a 500-foot view. Mm. And that reminds me of a process that I, I spoke with uh, Jason Cantor on the podcast and about uh, dealing with his PTSD experiences having to do with being deployed in Iraq. And one of the processes that he went through with his clinician that he's talked about really openly is how I believe that he essentially recorded the story of this particular event that was just stuck in his mind. And he recorded it like on a, you know, on his phone or however he recorded the audio for it. And his homework was essentially to listen to that recording every single night until he got bored with it. That's again, that's a lot of closeness. You are really engaged with the thing, 
but you have a feeling of separation. You're doing it through this recording, through this tape that's being played back for you over and over again. And I just think that you see this all the time in in therapy and Mm. psychology, and it's really interesting to me, where we generally don't get better by pushing away or pushing down our bad thoughts and feelings, like the bad parts of ourselves, whatever that word means. We get better by getting close enough to the thing to do something about it, but not so close to it that we can't do anything about it. What do you think about that? Well, I think your application of the notion from relationships of optimal distance or that integration of intimacy and autonomy, Mm -hmm. your application of that to this forest is brilliant and original. Well, thank you. It's fantastic, and it's a general principle. I think a lot of clinical work is this two-step dance. You step in, you step back. You step in, you step back. You step further in, then you step back, you know, and it's, it's that fundamental process. And then the question becomes, so here's back to you. What do you think helps people do that? What has helped you do that yourself to find that optimal balance of closeness and distance, right, from difficult material? Great question. I, I think there are a lot of things that people can do here. What I first think about are a bunch of practices to remove the emotional sting from something so it's not as overwhelming. And and my strategy for that typically has been like pretty cognitive because I'm a pretty I'm a thinky guy. So for me it's actually really helpful to do stuff like clarifying the function of a thought and mm. returning to the why. What's the purpose that this thought is trying to serve? What's my dreaded experience? And just kind of thinking about it in that sort of top-down way can give me enough emotional distance that I can work with it. Um, And that gets to one of the big recommendations that people often give for dealing with intrusive or obsessive thoughts, which is journaling around them, just writing the thought down in a very detailed way. The whole story of the thought, everything that's going on in the mental movie of the thought while it's happening. And this can help somebody get some perspective around it. It can also help them identify any like cues or triggers that they might have. You know, if you notice day after day that you only think about the thought after you go to a certain place or after you interact with a certain kind of person, ah, that's a pretty interesting hint. And this detailed writing can help us separate ourselves from the emotions associated with thought and get that kind of 500-foot view. Second, frankly, I think a degree of distress tolerance and developing that in in a thoughtful way. I mean, we wrote a book titled Resilient, That's just an important capacity to have. A lot of people misunderstand distress tolerance. It's been really misused as a way to, frankly, like take advantage of people and be exploitative to tell them, oh, you just need to develop more distress tolerance around this thing. But when used properly, it's a really important capability to be able to be with something that's uncomfortable and to not get totally blown out around it. Another practice for me has been various mindfulness practices which can be a kind of acceptance practice. Like, can I breathe through something? Can I develop the capacity for untangling my my egoic self, I guess, from a particular thought stream so I'm not as wrapped up in it? Those are all things that have been really helpful for me. Is there anything that's been been helpful for you maybe that I that I haven't said or maybe if you just want to reinforce any of that? Professionally, I've, I see people do it, it works, and I do it myself, and it's great that you're doing it. Um, and I, I think there's something interesting here that's ironic to free ourselves ourselves of, the, of an obsession 
sometimes it's helpful to go into the obsession. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's counterintuitive, yeah. Yeah, and versions of that, which go back to my own you know, human potential workshop history, is when you dramatize it and you even mm-hmm. deliberately exaggerate it and intensify it. So, for example, just play it out. It, maybe there's a particular set of obsessive thoughts. You put yourself in a room. No one's going to call the police if you do it. And then you just start <laughs> really na- saying out loud, loudly, you exaggerate. You even make them a little ridiculous. You take them one step further. You imagine that there is a part of you, because often these particular obsessions relate to parts. Mm. They are Mm -hmm. the obsession of a part. So then if you own that part of you, you're bringing it into the ambit, the ambit of your own influence. And so you could pretend to be that part, which is like a preacher or a scientific but nasty critic or something, or a, or a evil Disney movie character, creepy, creepy kind of creature, Gollum, you know, like that, right? So these are all interesting. And it goes back to this kind of saying, Maxim, really from the human potential days, the one of the fastest ways to get off a position is to fully get on it. Because then you kind of help yeah. the gestalt to complete. Yeah, to just reinforce what you're saying here, Dad, there's a very common strategy called thought suppression that people try to do when they have these intrusive or obsessive thoughts. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You're just trying to push it down. You feel the thought pop into your head and you go, no, 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 no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shove that down, whatever it is that I'm doing. And then often accompanying that is a lot of self-criticism and self-blame because often the content of these thoughts the person is, you know, finds them shameful. You mentioned something a little bit earlier in the conversation about some of these thoughts having like a religious context or a religious root to them, things that the person is ashamed about that they're thinking or that they think it's inappropriate for them to be thinking. Those are all thoughts that we might try to shove down. But one of the most consistent findings in the research literature is that thought suppression just doesn't work. Yeah. And if anything, it tends to make things a lot worse. And there are other sorts of thought control strategies that are based on distraction, which is something you were mentioning earlier, that tends to be a lot more effective than suppression, for starters. But even more effective than that most of the time is thought acceptance, which is exactly what you're talking about, Dad. It's going into the thought to get through the thought. Yeah. And that's what tends to help people out long term. I would add maybe two things here to what we're saying that are kind of structural. One is by the very nature of of obsession or compulsion, they tend to go together. Mm. We're being hijacked by something very particular. So our attention is getting glued to some stimulus object. We're becoming stimulus bound. Structurally, one of the things you can do, there you are, you're worried about you're having an obsessive thought about a monster in the closet, let's say, or you're caught up in a conversation you had with somebody, some episode over and over again, right? Structurally, one thing that helps is to widen your view. Be aware of the room as a whole that you're in, not just the closet. Be aware of the house. Be aware of the houses nearby. Be aware of the land, the city, the sky, you know? Be aware of the whole of your life. Anything that structurally tends to move you out into the whole. Be aware of your mind as a whole. Yeah, okay, there's this flashing red light that you're ruminating about. What else is happening in your mind? There are body sensations that are neutral or positive. There are other knowledges there. Anytime you go out into the whole, you widen your view. 
that tends to depower, defuel the obsession or the compulsion. Mm -hmm. That's probably. Then the other, it's a little more technical, but wow. It's right up there with surrender to the worst that can happen. Because it just, it really gets at the fundamentals. And this is where you, with growing insight, recognize that the experience, the thoughts, maybe the images, maybe the emotions, you start deconstructing them. You use the technical methods found in early Buddhism, discussed it with Vipassana, where you start recognizing that that experience is made of parts. You start disentangling it. There's a body sensation element. There's a thought element. In the thoughts are different thoughts and almost different perspectives from different parts of yourself embedded in that kind of cascade of thought. And you start mm -hmm. teasing it apart. And in the teasing apart, it becomes increasingly impersonal. And it, it becomes increasingly just something that's happening. It's unpleasant. It's unfortunate. It's just happening. It's just unfolding. You're not implicated in it. You're not the owner of it. It's just there. And you start recognizing its emptiness. It is empty of solidity. It is empty of absolute existence. It is therefore increasingly empty of influence. The experience as an experience, because all experiences have the same nature, is cloud-like, fluid-like, gas-like, rather than brick-like. And that can really, it's deep, it's a deep practice, but that right there can just give you a kind of radical freedom in the middle of even if it continues to happen. That image is occurring, that image is empty. It's existing emptily. And what's cool about this, as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a little while, is that this practice that you're describing, Dad, is based itself on distinct regions of and functions of the brain. Like how you're talking about expanding your view or yeah, opening out, right. moving more into an allocentric as the word for it, processing stream, as opposed to an egocentric processing stream. That's right. Even these things where you're talking about seeing them as just made up as of parts and parts of parts of parts that have something to do with you, but a lot of it has nothing to do with you. That's not a very egocentric worldview. That's more of an allocentric worldview. And uh, even when you're talking about taking in the room as a whole, you know, rising, lifting your eyes up to the horizon, a line or above it, this can activate different parts of the brain. Because a lot of obsessive and particularly ruminatory function in the brain is based on the default mode, which we've talked about a million times on the podcast. It's what the brain defaults to. It's right there in the name. When it's not doing anything else, it's when we're daydreaming or ruminating or whatever else is going on for us. And so one of the practices that comes up over and over again in the recommendations here is something we talk about on the podcast all the time. It's meditation. It's mindfulness practice. It's <laughs> things that where you're deliberately focusing your attention. So you're waking up another part of the brain alongside the default mode or not letting yourself get kind of, I think that Dr. Rady, when we talked to him about ADHD, he talked about it as being like a vacuum cleaner, the default mode mm. vacuum cleaner, just sucking you back into it <laughs> over and over again. No, you're applying some deliberate attention in all of these practices. And, and just the practice of using attention itself can be really valuable here. Really true. And it's great to, you know, maybe just to finish, the problem with obsession and compulsion, it's in the word even compulsion, mm -hmm. is we feel that we're helpless in the face of it. It has us in thrall. 
right? It has us in its grip. And what you and I have been exploring is ways we can have agency. Yeah. Ways we can have a kind of freedom and an opportunity. And we're not helpless. We're not defeated. We're not immobilized. So that way back when, checking my recording time, 40 minutes ago or whatever, I said, hey, I'm going to give you two case studies. And then I only ever gave you one. So here's what I would love to do. And again, we haven't really done this on the podcast before, but I like this idea as it's coming to me at the moment. I'm going to paint you a very common picture of maybe the most common thing that people tend to obsess or ruminate about, which is a past interaction that we had that went a little bit sideways for us. And what I would love you to do if you're up for it and if you think you can, is to give sort of a three to five bullet point list of what the person could do or what you would do with them, maybe drawing on all the various things that we talked about today. So we're going to kind of tie it all together here. How does that sound? Sounds great. And I, I do want to mention that this idea of, of doing what I call demos, demonstrations mm-hmm. on particular real things is great. And in the rumination workshop, we're going to do four demos with oh, awesome. people. Yeah, we're going to have volunteers who are willing to give oh, their bodies cool. up for science for real. And on ruminative worry, resentments, regrets, which often involve remorse and guilt, and a background sense of not being good enough. So it's pretty cool, actually, that Very we're going to cool. do this kind of thing there. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know which one of those categories this case study is going to fall into. Maybe you could take me, or maybe it's a fifth one. Who knows? Oh, it's but, a little um, okay. bit around regret, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a little bit around regret. So yeah. here's the thing. I'm just making this up off the top, but I think it's a very classic one. And I've certainly had ones like this for myself in the past. Person comes in, says, maybe it's somebody you've worked with for a while. Maybe it's brand new. Says something to the effect of, you know, Rick, I just keep on thinking about this interaction that I had with fill in the blank, a family member, a friend, a romantic partner, past romantic partner. It happened a long time ago. It happened, you know, four or five years ago. And I just keep on chewing on it. I I think about exactly what I said. I, I replay the conversation over and over again. These days, I keep on thinking about how things might have turned out differently if I just said something a little bit different to them. I feel like I'm still living the consequences of this in a weird way in my life in the here and now. I have a lot of preoccupation about it. It pops up in my mind on a monthly basis, at least, if not more frequently than that. And I just want to let it go. So you're asking for some go-tos, so I'll just go through them. One, really, as best you can, open to all of the feelings. Because probably what's happened in part is that there's some unexperienced experience. There's some feelings kept at bay or you just haven't fully gotten in touch with. Maybe there's a deeper layer that this particular episode connects with. Maybe it went awry with your romantic partner at the time. And then that links to things going awry when you first started dating in junior high school or something. And then that relates to being cast out and misunderstood and rejected when you were in preschool. Yeah. There's a bigger theme or pattern here that it's accessing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's uncovering and releasing fully. That's a thing. So you really feel it. And maybe what you feel is you really feel your regret. Because maybe in the mix of it all, what they did and what you did, there's the part that you did. And you maybe were a little mean or you were a little too stoned or you, you know, just lost your temper and were on instead of kind of a nasty thing that two times out of three might have not led to a breakup. 
A big one I think that here is feeling misunderstood. Feeling like maybe what you said wasn't really that problematic, but it landed in a really problematic way on the other person. That's one where I see people really preoccupy themselves with. Yeah. That's really great. So I'll go there. So first, feel the feelings and surface them, scour them, really release them. Second, take maximum reasonable responsibility. You don't get free until you take responsibility, but you don't get free if you overdo it, right? So it's, it's a combination of closeness and distance that you talked about in terms of your responsibility. You really step into your responsibility fully, but there's a boundary to it. And then for me, it's really quite helpful to make a distinction between stuff that's worthy of remorse, really, and stuff that was just, you just didn't know. You didn't come into it with ill will. You weren't evil in some way. You know, you weren't reckless in some way. But something happened that didn't go well. Well, now for the future, you will learn from that experience. You're going to put in skillful correction. You are responsible for what you said. This distinction right there is really, really useful. So you, you do that part. And this goes to the, one of the best parts of the book we wrote together for us in the last chapter on forgiveness, because this yeah, is an exploration totally. that's in, related to forgiveness. So you, you really do that part. So that's second. What's your responsibility? And then third, it's just really helpful to see everything involved. Mm. You know, going wide, the bird's eye view, the big picture view, the 10,000 foot view, all the causes and conditions, their history, your history, the other factors in the mix. You depersonalize it then. You see all of it. I find that these three, the feelings, the responsibility, and the wide inclusive view, really important. And then you can move to a release. And that part then is the fourth part where you really get on your own side about mm. releasing. You try to help yourself disentangle. There's a lot of early Dharma about disentangling, you know, because we get caught up in knots, right? So we want to disentangle and we want to disengage. And for me, there's often, sometimes you get a full release just by doing the first three things. You get disentangled. Often you need to be a little willful about it. You need to remind yourself, look, I've really felt the feelings. I could rehash them. I could make myself feel those feelings again and they feel bad, so why would I do that? I'm not resisting the feelings. I have fully opened to them and allowed them to flow through me and there's no point in revisiting the episode because I'll just feel bad again. And then also I can see all these things, including my efforts to make amends, to repair, to clean it up. I've done all that I can. And then there's a place where you go, sweetie, you're talking to yourself here. You can turn a corner. Yeah, if you're reminded of that event, you may feel things, you may wish it had turned out differently. You can turn a corner. I mean, it's really interesting for us to claim guilt and innocence side by side. Guilty for this, innocent about that. Both true. And it's weird. Your capacity to, to claim responsibility with or without appropriate guilt, because some responsibility is just a matter of skillfulness. But to claim that responsibility enables you to claim innocence. And a lot of people, they're stuck. You know why they're stuck? Because they're in the, the messy middle. They've insufficiently claimed responsibility. And they've also insufficiently given themselves the benediction of innocence. I think that's a really wonderful point to add. 
It's very, very well said. And uh, I think this is one of another one of those topics that we could just keep going on. Yeah. And maybe, hey, there's going to be space for another episode down the line, I'm sure, on rumination, obsessive thinking. You've already laid a bunch of breadcrumbs here inside <laughs> of this episode, things that we kind of talked about for 15 seconds and then moved on to something else. To kind of just close with wrapping up something that we named throughout the conversation, all of these experiences are normal experiences. And the pain for a lot of people around intrusive thoughts tends to fall into one of two categories. Either the thought itself is distressing. The picture we painted earlier with the monster in the closet waking up next to the dead partner, these are disturbing thoughts just on their own. The second category are thoughts that we have that make us feel bad about ourselves. And our final case study is kind of a little bit more tinged that way. It's really hard to work with thoughts like that if we have a conception of them as unique to us because we are a uniquely bad person. This is sometimes referred to as negative grandiosity. Things are happening to us because we are just that bad of a person, essentially. And it's really hard to get better if you have that framework about yourself. And one of the best ways to feel a little bit better about yourself as a person is to do good things in the world. Mm. And it's a little reductive. It's a little simplistic. There are a lot of people who do really great things in the world who still think of themselves as not a very great person. But I can say from personal experience that my self-concept has improved as the quality of my behavior has also improved. And it's gotten easier and easier for me to give myself some freedom about things that happened in the past as I feel like increasingly in the present, I've behaved in an upstanding way. And so this can fall into one of two categories. Maybe you're already doing a lot of great stuff and it's appropriate for you to give yourself a little bit more like positive kudos about it. Or hey, if if you feel like you've got a a deficit of behavior in the past where you you look at earnestly and you're in that responsibility taking process and you're like, wow, yeah, I really did screw this up. Well, what can you do in the present? That makes you feel a little bit better about yourself, makes you feel a little bit more capable, a little bit more giving, a little bit more loving to other people. Because over time, you know, that can really do a lot. And it's more of an external way of addressing these issues that we've talked about today, which has been mostly about the internal process. But I just wanted to name that here at the end as something that has certainly been very helpful for me. Oh, thank you. And my postscript is just to say that so much of our obsessions and compulsions are a way of managing fears of contamination and catastrophe. Yeah, totally. And therefore, just even thinking back on the example of being scared of the monster in the closet. One thing that I do still is it's like open out into refuge. What is your refuge? And maybe your refuge is a sense of your life as a whole as basically okay. Or you you have a sense of a kind of, maybe you come from a faith tradition and you just kind of give it up to God or you just open out, you, you rest in in something that for you is important or enduring. Or for me, it's in part, for example, opening out into just awareness and, you know, the ground of all. So whatever that is, just knowing that you have mostly good intentions, that refuge, what can you take refuge in, right? It gives you relief from, you can turn away from the obsession and turn into and turn toward those things that are a refuge for you. I had a great time today talking with Rick about obsessive thoughts, obsessive thinking, rumination, and what we can do generally to be more free inside of our own minds, because that was a real theme that ran through the conversation as a whole. 
we don't want to be a prisoner to what's going on inside of our cognition or what's boiling up from the basement inside of us. And there are various real steps that people can take to improve their experience of their interior. And there's this broad theme in psychology, mental health, personal growth in general, about balancing closeness and distance. We're balancing the closeness and distance we have toward other people, retaining our own autonomy while also being intimate with them in various ways. And we're balancing the closeness and distance that we have to our own thoughts, our own interior. And if you look at the practices for recovery for things like PTSD or dealing with an obsessive thought or changing a behavior in general, you'll see this big theme where we want to get close enough to it that we can do something about it, but not so close to it that we become overwhelmed by it or a prisoner to it. And this process inherently is somewhat confrontational. We're not just pushing the thought away. We're not just pushing it down. We are pulling it towards us, deliberately engaging with it. But we're at choice about that engagement. We're not a prisoner to the process anymore. We are taking control of it in some way. So with that as context, returning to the very beginning of the episode, we started by talking about rumination. And rumination is the habit of obsessive thinking. It occurs when you just can't move on from something. A thought, an idea, an event that happened to you, it's just replaying itself over and over and over again in your mind. And one of the key characteristics of rumination is that you're not advancing with the thought. It's not really changing in meaningful ways. You're not actually coming up with any new ideas about how to deal with the thing. You're just stuck in the pattern. Many of the things that happen inside of our psyche, and rumination is certainly one of them, have a purpose that's tied to them. You know, they're happening for a reason. They're not just happening based on a malfunction of our brain, although that can certainly happen too. And there are different kinds of thoughts that somebody could be ruminating about, and those different thoughts might have different reasons that they're bouncing around in there, but we can oversimplify a little bit and group them into different categories. One common reason that people ruminate is that it functions as a form of self-soothing. So they think that they're doing something about a problem because they're thinking about it over and over and over again. And this can even take the form of kind of magical thinking, which is something that Rick talked about during the conversation, where somebody thinks that by worrying about getting into a car accident, they are preventing a car accident from happening. Another common reason that people ruminate is as a sort of dysfunction of the problem-solving capacity of the brain. One of the most powerful abilities that we have, and this operates in the background, largely unseen most of the time, is to solve different kinds of problems. If you need to balance holding multiple pans as you're cooking or moving one implement while opening a drawer, your brain is doing problem solving. It's figuring out how to perform all of these different tasks simultaneously. And this function of the brain is so powerful and so sophisticated that we normally don't even notice it when it's occurring. But sometimes it can become dysfunctional, particularly when we're faced with a challenge or a situation or a problem that doesn't have a real solution for it, right? We had this painful experience in the past. We can't really do anything about it in the here and now, but uh, it's still causing us a lot of discomfort. And the brain can get a little dysfunctional in trying to still solve a problem that can't really be solved. Another very common source for obsessive thoughts or rumination is unprocessed emotional experiences. And this is what we spent a lot of the conversation talking about. 
It's really normal to have emotional content tied to our previous experiences that we just haven't fully chewed on yet. And this moved us into a kind of role play session where I gave these two different scenarios of obsessive thoughts that somebody might be dealing with. The first one, a kind of bizarre intrusive thought having to do with fearing that there's a monster in the closet or that you might wake up one day and find your spouse or partner dead beside you in bed. These sort of bizarre scenarios that people might have. And then the second one, which we talked about at the end of the episode, a very common situation where somebody is just still chewing on this thing that happened to them a long time ago and they just haven't been able to come to resolution around it. And again, many of the practices that we suggested here came back to that idea of balancing closeness and distance. For example, I talked about journaling. One of the common recommendations that people will give for dealing with intrusive thoughts is journaling about them in a really detailed way. Writing down when you had the thought, what happened to you around the time that the thought occurred. Then writing out the narrative of the thought in excruciating detail, thinking about any things that might have happened that could have cued you into the thought. Writing down your associated emotions, doing so honestly and doing it without a lot of judgment if you can avoid it. And this can help us do something that Rick talked about a lot, which is finding some separation, seeing the thought as this thing that is happening to us rather than this thing that we are. Because thoughts in general, as Rick said, have this kind of cloud-like or insubstantial nature to them. And we can see them that way. We can relate to them that way. We can take the egocentrism out of it a little bit and try to see the situation a little more holistically. And we can do the same thing with the events that happen to us and our ruminations or obsessions about them. We can get a greater sense of perspective. We can try to see the whole rather than the part. We can take full responsibility for our missteps, our problems, our issues, while also giving ourselves appropriate credit for the ways in which we really did try hard or we are really trying to make things better. And one of the things that Rick said at the end that I thought was really great was how he said that a lot of people are stuck in the messy middle. They haven't fully taken responsibility on the one hand, and they haven't fully given themselves credit on the other hand. And so they're just stuck in the in-between of those two things. And it's a two-part process. You have to do both. You have to take responsibility, and hey, it's really helpful to give yourself some credit along the way. If you enjoyed today's episode, a quick reminder that Rick has an upcoming workshop on rumination. That's on April 22nd. It's a one-day live online workshop where you'll learn how to identify rumination when it comes up and get out of negative cycles in your head compassionately and effectively. And you can visit rickhansen.net slash rumination to learn more and get 20% off with coupon code BEINGWELL20. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on. If you are listening to the podcast and not watching it and you would prefer to watch it, well, you can find me on YouTube at Forrest Hansen. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.